Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Hello and welcome to another Regenerative Roundtable. Before we get started, I just want to give a little disclaimer that the audio on this interview is going to be kind of rubbish. I had some problems with the microphone before we got started and I figured it was better to just let the conversation run because it was a really good talk and some of the information from both Neil and Charlie was really invaluable. It was probably something that I couldn't recreate. So bear with me with the kind of lousy audio on this one. I promise you can still hear everything and I've got a new microphone coming for the next one so things will pick up from here so thanks for bearing with me and we'll get on with the show all right hello everybody welcome to another regenerative roundtable i am joined here today with neil haggerty as always hi guys and my friend and mentor charlie rendell um owner of what's the name of your business now you have a website and you have what people call you (laughs) just bamboo charlie but his website is org Perfect. So we got a good team for you today. But before we get started into some of the topics that we're going to be covering, Neil, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on on the farm development more than anything over the last month? Uh, Yeah. So over the last month, well, uh, somewhat alarmingly, we realized that the road that they're constructing way up above us, which will be an access down in from the main road, is, uh, is really playing havoc with the local ecology. We noticed a new... Um, what would I call it? 
like erosion gully stroke full-on flowing river right to the side of our property um we've had to come up with our on-the-spot sort of strategy to make sure that that water doesn't come anywhere near our house um yeah it's been a little bit chilling because it's closest to my end of the house and in the middle of the night after kind of a mediocre rain i noticed this rushing water sound and i could easily see out of my window that there's just yeah i mean probably a two foot wide river just careening down the side of the hill so this needs to be addressed really quickly obviously yeah and somewhat um out of necessity we built our house right above hello and welcome to another regenerative roundtable before we get started i just want to give a little disclaimer that the audio on this interview is going to be kind of rubbish um i had some problems with the microphone before we got started and i figured it was better to just let the conversation run because it was a really good talk and some of the information from both neil and charlie was really invaluable it's probably something that i couldn't recreate so bear with me with the kind of lousy audio on this one i promise you can still hear everything and I've got a new microphone coming for the next one, so things will pick up from here. So thanks for bearing with me, and we'll get on with the show. Um, or right in the middle of of kind of like a small-ish but significant gully. Uh, like I say, it was we didn't really have any choice. It was kind of like a natural place to put the house in terms of the shape of the land and maximizing the space. Um, and luckily, where we are, there's a lot of vegetation above us. This kind of like for people new to permaculture design who are doing contour maps and looking to apply kind of the scale of permanence and, and looking to manage water. Very important to realize that the contour map should start not necessarily on the land, but but above it. Um, so word out water to get sort of. Um, um, In our case, redirected, redirected. Yeah, uh, just a little bit. The next place there's sort of like an erosion gully over to the west of our land, maybe 10 meters where all the water is running right now. Were that to get redirected, the next spot it would run down is into the gully that's, that's above our house. So coming up with an on-the-spot strategy for moving that. We already have a, a, a big dry wall and, and um, a French drain, um, but we need, to, we need to make it bigger and we need to make sure that that gets kicked off to the side ASAP. Um, we have maybe about four meters behind the house and there's a big portion cut out before you get to the dry stack wall, which is actually where we're installing private bathrooms for each of the residences. Um, and then from there, there's maybe another four meters to the back of the property. Now, what we've been doing is stacking more stones, which we have in overabundance on our land in a way that kind of slowly redirects the water. Cause if you just put a, a wall or a barrier in front of it, it, you, first of all, you don't know exactly how it's going to hit it. Um, if it brings down solid matter, it could bust right through the barrier because of the force of that much water, or it could go either direction. In our case, neither of which is good would still put it towards the house. So we're making a very kind of gradual swoop down this natural gully in order to direct it towards a part of the property where it would do the least amount of damage. Yeah, and we've kind of got, but just below the house, we've got kind of like a natural sweet spot, which we'd identified from a long time ago as being kind of a, a potential overland storage, which can absorb roof water, grey water, and hopefully flood water. But 
so we're really preoccupied right at our preoccupied yeah preoccupied at the moment with making sure that if that water starts to flow over land towards towards our house that it gets immediately kicked around the house and then into this pond that is is down below the house so um interesting kind of uh, design challenge and in general um i feel like when you start getting into permaculture everybody always talks about don't let water leave your land slow it spread it sink it <laughs> And, and that is very important because we have six months of drought here. So you really do want to, you do really do want to try and save water and create abundance in your land, but you want to do it in a way where huge, you know, here you can get, you know, how much rain can you get in one? What's, what's, what's one severe weather event here, Charlie, do you think? I think we got four inches the night of Hurricane Stan. Yeah. So. So that's a good amount to have in, in mind when you're planning these things. Plan for a really, really severe weather event. Um, and this is information that you can find on very simple resources like weather.com or uh, NOAA, the N-O-A-A, I believe it is, from the United States, takes a ton of climate data from all over the world. Um, all of these are things that you can look up online for free. And it's a little bit counterintuitive at times because sometimes you look at the land here, especially during dry season, and you do see these kind of erosion gullies. I have these conversations with clients quite a lot. And I say, look, the amount of water that's going to come down here during rainy season is enormous. And, and they kind of don't believe me because they just see dusty land. And yeah, it's a bit of a gully, fair enough. But actually imagining what four inches of rain that all collects and makes its way into uh, a gully from way further upstream looks like it's it's actually kind of mind-boggling the the amount of water and the, the the potential destructiveness that that carries but kind of like finding that balance between saving and using that water but in a way where it's not going to take structures with it or or or, or cause major erosion it's it's a very interesting challenge that we have here. Yeah, we had to look at that as well for measuring gutter sizes, well, designing gutter sizes for the hotel, the Bamboo Guest House, which is something you're connected with. And it was, uh, the data was mostly for the US, so I had to choose a US state, and it was Hawaii. It was the only state that had the hurricanes that you could take the rainfall measurements for, and we had to put the biggest gutters you could possibly get, which is massive 10-inch wide gutters for the for the hotel. And uh, that's what I remember about studying the, the data for Guatemala. It was as high as it gets because we get hurricanes. So we have these absurdly high uh, rain patterns that uh, come through in, in the form of hurricanes and we don't get affected by the weather the wind so much we get affected by the just a huge amount of rain that gets dumped on us and uh, many of the people who built in San Marcos de Laguna which is the neighboring town from you guys we all the foreigners came here in the 80s and 90s and noughties uh, and bought land in this beautiful valley and uh, then found out that none of the locals built here because is where the hurricane would uh, every 50 years would clean out the valley uh, with uh, several meters of dirt and uh, it would come down very destructively. And we found this out in 2005 with Hurricane Stan and then uh, Tropical Storm 12E and uh, not, uh, what was it called? Uh, Tropical Storm Agatha and uh, in 2009 and 10 and they brought 
huge amounts of water through the valley and cleaned out houses. Uh, 12 houses disappeared that night. We got our garden cleaned out and uh, a lot of damage. Uh, so knowing and researching the land before you build on it is, is great. And sometimes you're forced into a situation. I'm building a house up the valley. We It's right in the middle of the landslide valley. It's built on top of two meters of recently formed land. And so what we did is we built it like a boat so that if another hurricane comes down, or rather when another hurricane comes down and sends two meters more of dirt, it channels itself around it. And that's kind of the situation you're facing now with uh, channeling. Yeah. And I kind of think that there's there's this understanding, especially in this type of climate, that the landscape is always temporary, especially in these in these hilly terrains, because what you what you need or what you start to understand through observation is that changes upstream of where you are radically affect um you know where you are you might look at where you are and think well we're kind of on a ridge line here it's pretty safe but rivers can so easily change course here you know some and honestly that's kind of what's happening to us right now because we did a lot of due diligence in picking out the place where we put our farm and it was well away from most of the known or identified gullies and wash points including some of the man-made ones that the local municipality had dug out in previous years. Now, the like we mentioned before, the installation of this road up above us is not only just dropping down debris and stones that could divert some of the gullies, uh, a whole lot of what is being thrown off is actually being thrown off directly into the river. And so it poses, right at the moment, a huge risk for everybody down below who kind of strategically built around areas of risk. Those aren't necessarily going to be the same areas to look out for any any longer. Now, I've talked at length about some of the ways that you can help to mitigate um, the risks of an ecosystem if you take it on on a very large scale. I was interviewed by Scott Mann for the Permaculture Podcast a handful of months ago and spoke um, at length about ways that you can kind of, yeah, divert the risk and manage the landscape in order to kind of do the best you can. But with climate change or climate weirding or whatever you want to call it, um, constantly bringing what we would consider to be 100-year storms into 10, 15, 20-year frequencies, you really kind of need to plan for the worst wherever you're located. So how about Neil and, and Charlie? Neil, more so on the landscape side, could you talk a little bit about some of the things that you can do in a landscape on a broader scale to help to absorb the shock of some of these weather events? And then afterwards, Charlie, if you could talk about some of the ways that you can fortify a structure in order to weather some of these storms a lot better. Yeah, well, I think it's super interesting because climactically, this is why I always bang on about the uh, scale of permanence when I talk about designing. So understanding the climate that you're in is the first point in the, in the scale of permanence. And where we are is, I would classify it as the wet, dry subtropics. Uh, we have six months of basically drought, and then six months of intermittent but occasionally extremely heavy rains. So that can produce a a borderline fragile landscape. It's a landscape that desperately wants to be under perennial vegetation as much as possible. Because, you know, somebody once said to me, I, I, was, I was talking about how there seemed to be in this area a kind of a not great understanding of erosion. People seem, seem to just like 
plant their coffee or their avocado trees or whatever they are. They don't really terrace. They don't really do anything. And sort of as an as a young permaculturalist, not really knowing the ropes and being idealistic, I couldn't understand why people weren't doing more terracing or were people more using swales more until you eventually realize that people are okay in a sense, having overland water flow go across their property because they don't mind losing some soil because they seem to feel that more soil is going to come down from above anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, almost guaranteed. You know, um, and okay, it might not be the most sophisticated solution to the problem, but I think there is a way of setting up landscapes where you look at these problems as opportunities. So where you realize that the landscape is temporary, and where these major weather events, if you set your land up properly, although there might be some destruction, if you're sort of intelligent about it, the net gain is bigger. Uh, that, uh, <clears throat> especially in the landscape where we are, you were in the big picture, where we are is young mountains. So you've got these extremely steep slopes. It's like the Andes, it's like the Himalayas. Uh, these, Do you uh, know the name of this range? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll definitely not edit that out. <laughs> it's the Western Highlands of Guatemala, but I mean, we're on the, that counts. We're on this this big fall line that runs all the way from we're on a massive plate that runs all the way along the west coast of the Americas from uh, Alaska down to Patagonia. It's like this community called non-attachment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which in effect. Uh, reflects the local attitude towards not terracing. And that isn't always the case. If you look at the Incas, for example, they did a lot of terracing. And, uh, in, a, in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more temperate, but yeah. And uh, so the, the problem with uh, the not terracing and not doing erosion control is that the slopes are a lot more vulnerable to being washed out. Yeah, and the cumulative problem is, in some sense, you move the problem on. Um, because the more you, you know, if terracing is done correctly and if earthworks are done correctly, you take the force out of the water so that even when it does escape from your land, which in this climate, you have to let it. You have to let some water run off your land. Um, but you're majorly taking the force out of it and you're you're not necessarily passing the problem on to the the person below you or accentuating it depending on how you manage it and what we saw and then walking up the valley after hurricane stan i was lucky enough to walk with the the chocolate shaman keith uh and uh he's become a local personality from his chocolate ceremonies that he does here in san marcos la laguna and popularizing chocolate as as a mind-altering substance but in his uh, earlier professional life, he, he's a geologist and very knowledgeable too. We were lucky enough to walk up the valley with him. And we did an estimate of how many landslides there were just in the San Marcos La Laguna catchment area. And we. San Marcos La Laguna being a, a, a tiny little village, by the way. But situated right in a large valley among other mountains, which is exactly the same in Sunina. Yeah, so these little valleys around this gigantic crater. Uh, so again, steep mountains and very prone to erosion and landslides. And we estimated that there were 450 
small landslides all around the slopes and they were like cat's claw marks scratched down the sides of the mountains you can see these after the rainy season if you look around the entire lake wherever there's these steep lands you have these little landslides and something i learned through building on these slopes is that it all depends on what it's made of and how steep it is and you get these stable zones and these unstable zones the steeper it is the more unstable it becomes and what's on the sort of top uh, upper unstable part will just slip down in the event of hurricanes and earthquakes or the worst case scenario that he painted was a hurricane and an earthquake at the same time where you would get possibly a blockage up higher in the mountain in the valley and it fills up and fills up until you build like a dam of, of water and debris behind it and then that suddenly bursts through and you'll get a six meter high wall of rock mud earth sand and trees and mush shooting down the valley at 120 miles an hour six meters high and that would just ream everything in the valley so that's the worst case scenario fortunately that only happens once every billion years but See, I would call it the best case scenario because in the other ones you die kind of slowly, whereas six meters of rock and debris is like that's lights out immediately. You don't even see it coming. It is, and I guess the other thing that it's hard to understand when you're just looking at these landscapes as sort of like a young permaculturalist and you're just looking to identify gullies and ridges is to understand that when these rivers get blocked up, they completely change course. When you get these sort of damming effects or a plug of mud coming down and blocking one of, for example, the five waterfalls that are above our heads in Sununa, those rivers will just, they'll just completely change course. So there's, the landscape can be very, can change in no time at all. And we're surrounded by, all around us, there's these beautiful rocks, huge, enormous boulders that you can kind of climb up onto and sit there and, you know, feel the feel the heat of the yeah, rocks. Yeah, there's some benefits to it, but it also makes for a very volatile ecosystem at certain parts of the year. And you realize that these rocks didn't walk here. They, <laughs> <laughs> they made their way down the mountain. The well, so with some of that grim but very problematic and necessary information on kind of how to make sure that you, you avoid the worst case scenarios, um, let's get back to some of the other things that we've... Well, I'll just say one thing because, you know, you a lot of this stuff gets really daunting when you talk about it. Um, and then, you know, from a landscaping, Man, sleep. from a landscaping point of view, what can you do? You know, I, I often sort of say make this point in in when I'm teaching courses, when I'm approaching designs is that, you know, these problems that we're faced with are, are daunting. And some people deny climate change. Some people say climate change is a thing. Some people say the world is heating up. Some people say the world is heating, is cooling down. Really, whatever the problem is, there's very few of them that can't be solved by planting trees and especially native trees um, because that is nature's first line of defense, especially in these areas where organic material breaks down super fast and where you can see with the few... Um, virgin ecosystems that there still are dense um multi-layered forest that is what this land wants to be under so mimicking those patterns as ever is is your is is your best bet uh, i can talk a little bit now if you'd like about what you can build to protect your house oh yeah, yeah by all means so after hurricane stan we we had a small river coming through our garden when our the back of our property is a is a sort of 
40 meter long length that runs east west and the and the valley runs north south so it was perpendicular to the flow of the river so we had to figure out what we were going to do we were going to sell up and move out or we were going to protect and invest we decided to protect and invest and we built a, a whopping great stone and concrete and steel wall all the way along the back of the property but what i built into it was a weak and low section so that if something ever does come like another hurricane with lots of rock and debris, it's going to choose the lower area of, of, of the wall to hop over. At least that's my hope. It's always a bit of a lottery, and uh, the, the river will go where it's, uh, where it's most easily directed or where it's most easily uh, flows. Exactly, and trees form a great, a great uh, barrier to that because they're big and they take a while to... to get knocked down by whatever it is they will get knocked down but there's enough uh, flow and uh even one tree it fell across the valley across the riverbed up above and it and it built up a bunch of debris and then the river hopped over and so the night of hurricane stan the river was hopping all over the valley um based on what it did and what was interesting to see was what had remained after and something that had remained was reinforced concrete <laughs> and that's and with deep foundations as well. So where it was a little adobe house, it was just washed away. Uh, where there was a lot of big growth old trees, uh, not that old because it is still a landslide valley, but lots of avocados, it was uh, redirected around them because it would the flow would hit them and then build up debris and then slide around the side of them. And that we saw that pattern again and again. Yeah, and those patterns are super important to look at. And sooner now where we have a huge river much more water in Sunana than it is in San Marcos. We're only um, 20 minutes away or about a 40-minute walk. But one of the things that's really interesting to look at in Sunana is all the areas that are kind of stripped, almost dry, but have loads of what the locals here call Kenya. Call Kenya. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like a... Arundax. Arundax. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like a clumping grass that grows up big and tall and actually makes a great building material. But it has an amazingly dense root structure, um, and in it's a, all the creeping rhizome, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a creeping rhizome exactly. Um, but in all the areas where you see it, even though they're on ridge lines, it's very obvious to look at the landscape once you realise what's happened. That these are areas that have been really washed out, where all of the vegetation. So the only thing that's in in certain areas, which are obviously riverbed or or, or flood plains, this Kenya and old growth native trees are the only thing left on the landscape um so, you know that tells you something that kenya can withstand these t- these types of events you know um concrete also can <laughs> basically you want to go around doing some sort of environmental detective work after events of large disturbance whether through machinery or weather events or in our case a lot of geological events including volcanoes and earthquakes of course and the things that remain undisturbed are really worth taking note of, and the things that you don't see anymore are also worth remembering because those are the indications that are going to give you the clues to make better decisions for more resilient buildings and ecosystems moving forward. Right, because when I say that the solution to all problems is planting trees, that's a little bit generalistic because certain trees, for example, uh, softwood pioneer species, are the ones that are going to get uprooted and come in through the window of your bedroom. 
Um, <laughs> you know, whereas uh, bamboos and these clumping rhizomes are the ones with, that have the root structures to withstand such major such major weather events. Yeah, that's the point. So on a steep slope, bamboo can actually slip off and take a whole sheet of earth with it. That happened up above us. Well, see, that makes sense yeah. because, especially in areas like this, the topsoil is not that deep, and oftentimes you go right into bedrock. Yeah. And if it can soak the soil down to that point, it can uproot the entire structure. Yeah. But uh, certainly that's one of the, the things that I'm looking to build on the new landscape. As I, first of all, I look for the high spots because water is going to go for the low spots. And also what you said about checking out the contours above your land to see where water is going to be coming from. No point in building on a high spot if that's right in the center of a, of a gully. Uh, so it doesn't make much sense that, but <laughs> it, it can happen here. Yeah. The yeah, landscape sure. and does all sorts of things. So... The thing I do is look generally look for the high spot and something that I noticed when we were doing emergency excavations during the hurricane seasons, uh, trying to direct flows, was that it's very quick to actually dig out a valley and the, the material you take out, you just hop to the side and boom, you get the benefit of that material up to the side. So it deepens the valley effectively. And so... What I tend to do is look for a high spot and then build it up even high, higher using the land from the sides. And that makes a higher spot. And then if anything does come, it'll slip around to either side of it. And also sink very deep foundations so that if it does start excavating, because this is another important thing, is that when a flow, a, a river flow or a catastrophic flow of uh, that comes from a hurricane, they're called catastrophic flows, is going down a valley or down a slope where it is less steep it will deposit matter where it is steeper it will actually cut in so uh, depending on how steep it is uh, it will cut or it will deposit so you want to be careful if you're trying to uh, build in the, in the middle of quite a flat area and there could be a catastrophic flow um, be extra careful because it can actually deposit up around it and then bury your house and that's what happened up at the valley here with morton's house and he actually filled his entire house but it was built with concrete and steel and they just dug it out they literally sent up a team of guys and they spent months digging it out and so uh, you're really yeah. you're the best advocate yeah. for natural yeah. building yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, the best thing to do is to build on the ridges like the locals do. They've lived there for years. I mean, just uh, don't build in a landslide valley in the first place. But if you do, this is how to do it. <laughs> if you make an insane decision uh, around where to build your house, call Charlie. That's, that's what industrial like, materials like are for. <laughs> yeah. It'll make up for all of the bad planning and decision making in the beginning. It's a good band-aid. So, so moving back to a couple of the things that we've been doing on the farm to get things moving, we've got a couple of new animals. Do you want to talk about um, the the ducks that we've got and how things are going with the ghosts? Um, yeah, we well, we got two ducks because um, that's how you start. So we're going to start raising ducks uh, as well as chickens um, and goats. We're just addicts to continually trying to add one more species. We just love animals. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, the goats came because we, we, we bought a bunch of uh, chickens, local heirloom chickens. And then uh, we, in Ireland, we say we got sold a pup. Uh, we, uh, the, guy, the guy who sold them to us for a really great price, I then realized that it was a 
because of the 15 of them, eight, no, of the 10 of them, of the, of the ten of them six of them were, uh, were, uh, were machos. That's okay, they were delicious. Um, so we ate a bunch of them, uh, that was that was delicious, and uh, we actually traded one of them with a, with a local neighbor of ours who has ducks, and you know, our land is so good for, for building ponds on. Uh, we've put in our first natural pond, and like I say, in that sweet spot below the house, we're going to put another one. Um, so now that we have the ducks, it's like extra motivation to get get those wetland systems in. Uh, but for now, they're just chilling with our with our chickens in our in our deep composting house. They seem house. to get along really well with the baby goats, which is adorable. Yeah, the interactions between the goats, the chickens, and the and the ducks is it, it looks like heading to quite a lot of the time. Um, the goats are, are doing great. They're loving rainy season. They go out and, and, and range on, on the kind of common lands on actually a lot of these flood zones where there's not that much, um, where there aren't that many crops planted. And so they're going out, they're bro, they're browsing. And, you know, anyone who's ever, who's ever starting a farm, I really recommend uh, going one system at a time. So, you know, with our goats, we got them producing a lot of milk. We got them very healthy. Um, but then picking a couple of value-added products that, that sell well was really important. So I've been like doing a lot of experimentation in the kitchen. Um, to, and it, it took us maybe a couple of months to get it right. But we've got a really, really nice feta cheese uh, that's come out, which I think we're going to put a video up on YouTube on how to make that for anyone who's going to do goats and produce like good raw milk. And goats are just adorable. Um, they're, as a livestock animal, really, really easy to manage. Um, and, you know, almost free, almost free to feed, which is, you know, for me, such a big, big part of permaculture because they go out, they browse in the land, they eat all these pioneer species, high mineral plants, they bring them back and they uh, deposit that manure in in our in our animal polyculture system which you know an extra an extra project that we've started working on which we're going to talk about a little bit now is 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 the production of um of organic compost bokashis we call them um and and the goats and their mineral browsing is key to that but you know we've set our animal system up so that the goats are on the highest part of the land and then it falls down into a two-tier uh chicken house um, so we follow a kind of, uh, Joel Salatin talks about this a lot, this kind of principle that omnivore follows herbivore. So our chickens can come in and out as they want of the goat house. The goats can't go the other way because there's a little gap under the door. So the chickens come out, come in and scratch, clean in the goat house all the time. But then every week we clean the goat house out and throw it into the first tier of a two-tier chicken house. And that two-tier chicken house is a set of two terraces. And each terrace is excavated down about 80 centimeters and then has a has a wall built up about 50 centimeters above that so we've got you know uh like a meter and a half of organic material that the chickens are just on top of all the time so we essentially clean the goat house out onto the first level of the chicken house and then clean the second level of the chicken house onto the or the first level of the chicken house onto the second level of the chicken house and we do um we activate microorganisms and so every time we're moving one level to the other, we inoculate it with microorganisms. And then we, at the end, what comes out down the bottom of the chicken house is really high quality um, bokashi, uh, you know, which just really means um, microbially activated compost. 
Um, and yeah, all of our, and it's a great system because all of our food waste goes in there. We don't really turn compost piles as such. We just really flip it from one level to the next. Um, and it's just, yeah, everything goes in there. We, 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 we weed in the garden. It goes in there. Our kitchen scraps go in there. The kitchen scraps from our neighbors go in there. Um, and it's the more, the better essentially. And that goes nicely with a, a kind of a joint venture that we've just started with Charlie, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Yeah. But before we get to that, let me give you some updates on the house. So as Neil talked about that issue with erosion and the potential of having water flows coming into the back of our house has been extremely pressing and uh, definitely taken some precedent. But in the meantime, uh, Neil, you finally got moved into your house. How does it feel to be out of a tent finally? Oh my God. Amazing. Um, I, I mean, look, I really recommend anyone who's going to start a homestead or get into this permaculture um, kind of thing. It's invaluable being on your land, living on it, um, and just being there throughout the, the process. Um, so me and my partner, Adriana, we've been living in a tent for about the last eight or nine months. Um, and, you know... At the start, I was loving it. Uh, and <laughs> but then rainy season came. Rainy season came. But, you know, I was still, we had a roof. And, you know, we're, we're really in love. We just got engaged, by the way. Um, Congratulations, Neil. Thank, the family. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it was starting to get a little bit stressful. Um, and she went away to, uh, you went away to Colombia, where she's from, for the last uh, five weeks. Uh, I think because... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you had been living in a tent for the last six months. You know, I have a distinctive uh, aroma as well. <laughs> uh, it doesn't necessarily grow on you, um, but uh, you know, I, I I've been working quite hard. I'm I'm a mediocre carpenter at best, but Charlie let me use his workshop to get our doors built, and uh, I didn't want to move in until everything was almost right because one of the interesting things about having a, an entirely naturally built house with mud walls is that every time you do anything some of the mud crumbles down on top of you so you don't really want to be living there while you're running electrical cable or putting in stairs or doing any of the other things i was doing because your bed and your clothes and everything else just fills up with mud but uh i raced against the and and with Oliver's help and, and, and with Charlie's generosity of using his workshop, I got everything put in um, to a very basic standard. And Adriana's been back now for a week and has just been, she's an amazing artisan. Um, she makes uh, mandalas and, and paintings. And so she's been having a blast decorating the place. And I, I cannot describe to you the, the, the joy of waking up every morning in a house on a mattress with, with you know, it, it's, it's amazing. But, you know, everything is relative. So I re the process has been beautiful of, of going from the extremely rustic and having nothing to now just having what is still quite a basic house. Um, but my God, does it make you appreciate the little things? <laughs> Well, so that's the point, right? So I've actually been living in my portion of the house for a couple of months now. I <laughs> am not preparing it for another person at the moment. So I just got right in even before the second floor was in. And the cool thing about that is with every new advancement and every new part that you install, 
it's a whole new revelation. It's like, oh my God, I have lights and all of these really basic things that you take for granted when you've lived in a you know, well-furnished, comfortable house for most of your life. We have a shared, well, we have an outdoor shower. We have a shared um, dry toilet at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So the next priority is putting in private bathrooms behind each of these uh, units in the house that we share. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good insight into the way the human mind works. Essentially, my process seems to be uh, one day of extreme gratitude where I, I, I think you can't get any better. Uh, followed by my my mind starting to kick into overdrive and immediately thinking of all the new things I need to, to now be happy. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that when I first moved here. I moved here and I had a, a hole in the ground uh, as my bathroom and my toilet. I had no bathroom at all apart from that. Uh, a big open-air sink with no water and uh, a roof and walls. And then I met my neighbor, Gabby, who I'm now uh, been married to for 14 years. And uh, she had a bathroom. She had a bathroom with a shower and a, and, a, and, a, and a flush toilet. I remember looking at that thing going, oh, my God, I'm moving in here. And and then six months later. So that was what clinched it for you, uh, Gabby's yeah. bathroom, when you're married 14 years later. Priorities. Uh, <laughs> you know you can just build one of those, right? <laughs> I found out. I found out. <laughs> Yeah, then you went pro with it. We had eight months without electricity. I remember hooking up to electricity. And then about another six months later, we got internet. And, uh, and yeah, it's been downhill from there. But uh, <laughs> I, I will say that... Uh, There's nothing else to look forward to, Charlie. You overdid it. Well, like my sister, I would... If, if only you had a flat screen TV, then you'd be happy. <laughs> Well, I've got that now, but you're <laughs> still missing. But, uh, <laughs> but this is why we hang out with Charlie, by the way, because he's got all this nice stuff that we don't have. Yet. Yeah, exactly. If he was a woman, we'd have considered marrying him. <laughs> At least I've built most stuff out of wood. <laughs> but uh, I, I did notice that uh, even though I, I have this ideal of the hunter-gatherer society in the in a four-hour day and. Um, enjoying in, 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 in enjoying going back to basics i'm from london i'm from the city and i brought this technology with you it has this this strong desire and it's an interesting tension between uh, our natural desire to make life comfortable and letting go of the things that really aren't that necessary yeah, that's one of the things I think all of us have had some good perspective on. I mean, I basically lived out of a backpack for about 13 years of travel, and I've spent cumulatively years of my life living in tents out in uh, backcountry work spots in national parks, building uh, trails. Neil, you've certainly spent enough time in a tent as well. And yeah, like you said, we have different ways of going about it. I kind of moved into the house really early when it didn't have doors, windows, or anything. It still doesn't have windows. Um but I got to see the incremental changes and enjoy every minute step of that. And then you just put it off for a really long time. And it's like, yeah, I've got a house at the end, <laughs> which is pretty sweet too. But I also want to clear up for the record, you were saying that the walls were all kind of dusty and crumbly. We haven't plastered them at all. They're like natural walls will not do that inherently. You just have to make sure you put a plaster layer on there right now. It's still unplastered, bajareque, which uh, definitely will crumble because it's very rough. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, once I have plastered walls, then I'll be happy. Then that's, that's that's the missing piece. That's all I need. I'm pretty sure of that. 
Oh, and a flat screen TV. <laughs> One quickly follows the other, you know. If you've got plastic, <laughs> you're going to go crazy. Um, <laughs> all right, well, so, okay, so let's switch gears a little bit here. We've talked a lot about the development of the farm and... One of the reasons why we've got Charlie with us on this podcast is because we're kind of going into a joint venture, starting a uh, natural or permaculture organic gardening service for the people who live in our respective communities, Sununa and San Marcos here on the lake, um, with the possibility of branching out at some point to to other communities around here. So, uh, Charlie, why don't you talk a little bit about what got you interested in in adding gardening services to your already, you know, <laughs> overfilled work schedule as a contractor. The overwill overfilled uh, work schedule is what got me into the gardening business. <laughs> uh, I, it, and the conversation with one of my clients, uh, Sam Solomon, who uh, recently sold his company, Snowtech. Uh, he was doing very high-end garden and well not a garden actually front front driveway clearance it's very unglamorous job but he he lived up in the lake tahoe area and he got into the maintenance business basically and made a a a lot of money doing that and managed to retire at at a young age because of how successful it was and he told me the money is in the maintenance and it's the least glamorous part of it, but uh, it's actually an essential ongoing one. I've been working as a contractor for 14 years odd now. No, not quite that long, 10 years. And I love it. I love the creativity. I love the problem solving. I love working with uh, people from San Marcos de Laguna and the surrounding villages. I love the uh, so many things about it building naturally for very nice clients who i've had the privilege of working with however it always comes to an end and uh, then we have i have to look for the next job i have that anxiety i I have not been able to put away much in savings because it's a highly competitive industry and i'm 46 years old now and uh while i'm still in relatively good health knock on wood i don't know how much longer that'll help, uh, that'll go on. And hopefully another 40 years, I'll still be this healthy. But nonetheless, I need to start looking at the longer term reality that I am aging and that I can't keep doing this forever. It's an oddly vulnerable answer for yeah. why you want to get into gardening. Well, it, it's it. true. I love gardening. I am not a natural gardener, though. I'm, I am a natural builder uh, and, and problem solving uh, yeah but i also do have to integrate my buildings with the landscape i, I love nature i love the landscape here and i that's something i love about natural building is that it's it's actually a very sustainable way of integrating our existence with nature and uh deep profound respect for mother nature and and and, and it, how we are deeply interdependent with with uh, nature so uh, it's always, but I did realize when I came here, when I first moved here, I suddenly had uh, the responsibility of taking care of about half an acre of land. And I realized that it, it took a lot of work and I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I was much better at building things, so I stuck to that. But I, I, I really do want the land to be productive. And I had this fantasy, but I, that's not my culture. I, I, I grew up in London. I, 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 
I, I know how to negotiate tube trains and, and I know how to get a seat on a tube train, but it's not very helpful when it comes to uh, regenerating soil fertility, for example. I soon found out that the, the first crop of bananas was great, but then the rain here just washes that right away and you've got to come up with compost. And, and I didn't have a system and, and, and Shad came along and he showed me a lot about how to how to take care of the garden. But still, I realized just how much work it takes. And the, the saying that really come, comes to mind here is the, the best fertilizer is the gardener's shadow. But I was so busy that I didn't have any, that my garden never had my shadow on it. So it just withered and died. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the concept for the business, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's actually this acknowledgement that most everybody actually wants to have a nice garden that has food and is abundant and is beautiful. But very few people in the modern world have, have time to dedicate to it. So what we're trying to put together is um, is a service that lets people have this, lets people have the joy of going out, being surrounded by trees and fruits and flowers and and lettuce and radishes and you know all the amazing things that you can grow here. Um, but although we have this like twelve months of 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 sun and no frost and, a, and an unending growing season it's tricky because your garden will get overgrown in no time your compost will decompose in no time and what usually happens time and time again from someone who's built hundreds of gardens over my over my life is that you know what i see time and time again is this initial enthusiasm wears off after a little bit um and even though you can make the garden really nice most people don't want to turn compost piles or look after animals which is where most of your fertility comes from they don't want to be married to that so what we're trying to put together now is is a package where we can design and implement really nice gardens for people and then with our uh, with a team of 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 really of locals that we're working hard to train right now, have them look after the maintenance, um, so that people can enjoy this, and it goes hand in hand also with with training and capacitating uh, locals who are hungry for these kinds of opportunities, and and a lot of young kids in this in this valley are really really want these opportunities. Yeah, and that's, that's something that I found. There's a a lot of people here with some really good basic experience but they lack the the training in in more advanced permaculture uh skills and especially in the in the all the technology and information that's become available thanks to the internet and thanks to podcasts like this that all this knowledge sharing that's happening they've got a lot of the basic skills and i saw that also not that many people actually have that talent for gardening. And I've been very lucky to, over time, come across and work with several individuals who uh, who do seem to have the talent and training for that. Uh, some modest training here. And what I hope to do is actually contribute our organization and our access to, to, the, to the market here, because we've got a very uh, distinct market here in, in Nataplan, which is... A lot of people are moving down here because it's a beautiful place to live. And and, and because uh, Donald Trump is president of the United States, that's, <laughs> that's great for business. But uh, thank you, Donald. Yeah. <laughs>
stronger magnet, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's it's it keeps on people keep on coming here because there's still a lot of beautiful landscapes down here uh, that are, have politics that are questionable, but nonetheless uh, 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 more di- desirable than it is up north right now. Yeah, um, the, the political speeches here tend to be in Spanish, which a lot of the foreigners that move down here don't understand, so it's, <laughs> it's a little easier to take, I think. Also, something that uh, I've noticed here is that there's a, a very common pattern here amongst people who do move down here, which is that many of them are absent for the, for the rainy season. Uh, for some reason, they don't like the rain. It's actually one of my favorite times of the year. Exactly. And there's a surprising amount of sun. People don't give credit to the rainy season. It doesn't mean it rains all the time. I mean, you get the bad week or two where it's kind of cloudy, but exactly. usually you have more than half of the day sunny and, and fantastic. Yeah. And the garden looks a lot greener as well. So there's a lot to be different. But nonetheless, there are these periods where these people's houses and gardens are left vacant for long periods, and they need maintenance, especially if it's going to look beautiful for when they come back. And so we have this opportunity now where there are these talented people looking for work, and there are these people looking for beautiful gardens, and they also all have this dream of somehow having a productive garden that they can go out and pick their salad, pick their vegetables, pick their fruit from the trees. And it can be that way if it's well organized. However, it's not just going to happen between what the conventional model is of uh, a person who doesn't speak very good Spanish coming down and hiring somebody who they can barely communicate with and then uh, trying to organize a productive garden with that's going to work, especially in their absence, and then that they can somehow harvest wonderful, bountiful um, harvests from. And in fact, what tends to happen is uh, miscommunication, frustration, exploitation, and all sorts of other bad things. So I hope that this can be a bridge between uh, that situation and uh, a brighter future. Yeah, I mean, Charlie is listing off a whole lot of factors that are pretty unique to our area. Um, But what I would recommend to anybody, regardless of where they are, is do some research on where the points in the marketplace are calling for the services that you can offer and do so at a high quality and ecological way. And one of the reasons that we kind of on the Abundant Edge side are really excited about this is, you know, we only have a half an acre of a farm. The amount that we can produce as far as wholesale foods and uh, farm goods is going to be limited and is always going to have a very severe cap um, as far as what that land can produce as um, as the fertility that we put on it and the amount of profit that we can make in a pretty limited market for organic goods here in Guatemala. So with the systems that we have set up, especially around the animals and the amount of compost that we can produce, One of our biggest opportunities is to sell high quality propagated plants, either as seeds or starts um, or cuttings or, you know, there's a lot of different ways to to propagate plants. And we can resell those at um, a very high quality and a very relatively low price and potentially corner the market on something that is more unique than simply selling wholesale food. Yeah, and you know we that's why we named our farm Finca Sikin. Uh, Sikin is a is a local word that 
it's it's a Nawal, which is um, for anyone who's ever studied the Mayan calendar, it's one of the uh, it's one of the energetic uh, Nawal symbols. Is that the equivalent of a of a talisman in the in the zodiac? Is that correct? Kind of for this region of the world to kind of put it in context. Yeah, for this region, the Mayans were really um, mystics and, and studied stars a lot. Um, and they have these 12 different Nawals and, and Sikin, the symbol for it is, is, uh, the bird. Um, and one of the energies associated with it is abundance and seeds, because there was this idea that the, the bird is the one that carries the seed. Um, so one of the revelations I had is that we have this small garden. It's not that small, actually, it's about 12 meters by, by 10 meters. Um, but you know that's that's limited if you're trying to feed uh, anyone other than your family and yourself. But what you can do from a garden that size, uh, I kind of realized this from from touring around permaculture sites uh, in different places, is you can produce an awful lot of seeds. Uh, you can plant things that are hardy that do well in your local environment. There's tons of varieties here, and you can let each section. You can plant them in sections and and let 20 or 30% of each bed go to seed and, and, and you can save that. And for me, that's, that's hugely important. It's almost, um, it's almost like, uh, to me, it has significance beyond just uh, a business. Um, this idea of, of working with heirloom or native species that go to seed, it, it taps you into abundance in a way that, you know, you just can't imagine. It's, it's, it's a joy to me now that, so many of my neighbors or friends call into us uh, asking for seeds to start their gardens. I did it today. Yeah, um, yeah, Charlie did it today. Um, and it's, you know, and we just have so much to give. And, you know, if, uh, and so when you get into seed saving, you are kind of eventually left with this thing of like, okay, we actually now have like pounds and pounds of seeds of of arugula, of, of, of rocket and lettuce and radish and, and tomato and all these other things we can either give this all away and we will certainly give some away to our to our friends or we can um or we can build a business around it um and ultimately if you don't build a business around these things that you love and that excite you the endeavor will die the enthusiasm will wane once there isn't some kind of an incentive to keep doing it so producing compost producing seeds to me it's it's a it's a sort of symbolic activity that 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 embodies what we do and what we're about. I think one of the last major wins for the possibility of this business venture is like Charlie was mentioning earlier, there are a ton of underemployed yet very talented, hardworking and intelligent people in this valley, many of whom are very competent gardeners already. And with a little bit of extra training, they could really market those skills and make higher wages. So Charlie, you have, you know, over a decade of experience training local crews here, mostly in construction. Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges of, of the, that training process and the investment in the community, as well as the communication and the feedback that that really helps to foster. The educational system here is probably one of the biggest obstacles to the development of these rural communities, which is that the rural communities are very marginalized <clears throat> and they've been denied good education by uh, a very corrupt government for a long, long time. 
and that continues to be the case. So uh, the level of education that they reach by the time they leave, they, they leave high school is minimal. Ha hardly any of them have even finished a book. And it's, I, I, I had the uh, interesting experience of teaching in some of the local primary schools and secondary schools. And something that I was astonished by was uh, just how little actual learning was happening in them, uh, both the curriculum, the quality of the teaching, and the um, and the, the standards of the of the even the classrooms. Uh, you couldn't actually, unless there was complete silence, uh, the teacher couldn't be heard because everyone was whispering the whole time, and you just couldn't hear anything. So it was it was a very painful experience having come from a very privileged background in uh, in in London and going to some very good schools. Uh, although I have my criticisms of them too, but nonetheless, the, the, the level of education is um, appalling and uh, it actually sets them back. And uh, we actually homeschooled our child because we, we couldn't uh, bear to send him to, to, the, to these places. So compensating for that is a major part of it and encouraging uh, a benevolent place where they actually are encouraged to learn and want to learn and experiment. And uh, so, so I, I work mostly with manual skills, with carpentry and uh, it's masonry. Your masonry as well <clears throat> and bamboo and uh, giving opportunities for people to stretch themselves. My, my background is actually in education and professional development as well. So uh, I've looked mostly working with graduates, but then moving to some to, to a population with uh, very uh, much lower educational standards. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they all want to learn. You know, I think it's a it's a fundamental human uh, instinct to 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 want to soak up useful information that's going to help you. Uh, that in this case, to help you in the building industry. So for, for me, the, 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 the challenge of educating here is about providing opportunity and it almost happens of itself. Uh, a lot of it's also organization and finding the people who have the talent to be organizers and leaders and also training leadership as well. You get the people who naturally have it and you get the people who really want it and are willing to put in the hard graft. So organizing these teams of, of, of gardeners for me is a very interesting uh, project to, to do, even though I'm not a, like I said, a very good gardener, I do have the experience of building teams here. And I hope to, uh, and, and the support of decent gardeners as well, which is very important here at my side, depending very uh, thoroughly on them. Um, how am I going to go about that? Uh, I get as somebody, well, a conversation I often have with myself, actually, is what would I do if money was no object? And something that I would love to do here in San Marcos, La Laguna, is to actually provide educational compensation courses. I mean, uh, courses that would actually uh, make up for what they could have been taught at high school but weren't. So, for example, basic math and also some basic business skills and to actually help local people here to to form their own businesses uh for example the airbnb market is another one 
and uh, but also developing partnerships with local people. I think that would be an interesting development at the moment. It's it's quite a it's it's us three building this company uh, to provide this service. But uh, as soon as possible, I'd like to do kind of what I've done here in my own business here and in, in building, which is to form an administrative team uh, and to encourage partnership with them and that, that where everyone is as a, is a equal stakeholder or not necessarily equal but uh some sort of a, a partnership a bit like so to build up a some sort of partnership with uh local talent and uh this is we're spearheading it but to eventually build it into a fully functioning larger company with uh partnership that would be a dream come true to me uh, that's definitely a goal to work for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For now, just to make it sustainable. <laughs> yeah, because you're also getting into this topic of the skills that we want to teach our team are really practical uh, life skills. And, um, you know, it, it's something that's been so lacked. Chemical fertilizers and hybrid seeds were pushed here so aggressively that it's what people know, it's what people plant, even though... You know, people here are agriculturalists and kind of identify as agriculturalists. A lot of the craft of agriculture has been taken out by this aggressive conventional agricultural model that's been pushed by the government, pushed by NGOs. So the sort of art of seed saving and and close connection with nature has been lost a bit, even though people here, especially um, especially the local people that we work with, they are so talented and hardworking, and so what exactly what we're trying to set up is this is this type of thing where um, the people we take on and train can be properly compensated and start to be treated like professionals they that they are as opposed to underpaid, exploited, given out to gardeners who aren't given proper instructions and are so then like underpaid and you know essentially. Um, set up for failure failure, exactly Uh, so we want to set these guys up um, and set ourselves up for success so then we can turn around and say look this is a service that can deliver you bountiful amounts of organic food where you don't have to do anything except harvest and cook it Um, but you have to pay a fair fair price for that for that service and most of that uh, fair price will go to the people who are doing the work actually yeah so uh, an aspect of that that i think is very interesting is control and that something i learned early on in in business i helped set up a customer service business in india and read this great book it was all about how every customer no matter what you're buying a product a service you name it we're looking for control we want to have control of whatever we're spending our money on and people here with these with this wealth coming here into this land, they're looking for control of their gardens and they all have a dream of being able to get food from the garden. I think it's a deep human instinct, much like building as well. So, and that's something that I've realized working building as well is that people want to have control over how their money is being spent on their house. They want to have control over the design of their house. And uh, they 
didn't really get that before. They got a complete lack of control and got great frustration. And that created what I noticed here is a lot of uh, foreigners would come in, wouldn't speak Spanish, and they get very angry. And we're very used to having the confidence and the language to be able to express ourselves. And you see people being extremely offensive to, to locals and to actually change that model. And also the to change that dynamic, I mean, also changing the model, something I saw often happening here was these guardians, the, they called them guardian, and they were uh, both security, so they would live in the house and sometimes with their family and take care of these gardens. And they would be bored out of their skulls with, with mind-numbing, repetitive work, just hosing the garden. They would stand there for hours holding, the, holding a hose, wasting the village's water, keeping this, this, this lawn uh, on this, keeping this lawn green, which would then just evaporate much faster than if it were a productive garden with multi tiers and everything. Yeah. So we want to, what we want to do is do what we're good at, which is design these gardens for maximum efficiency. So that the, so that the work that is put into them is actually counts for something. And that way you can cut down an awful lot of the time the gardener needs to spend and that way our team can just rotate through the maintenance of our clients' gardens uh, in a way that really delivers um, a high-value service um, so that people feel like the money they're spending is really, really worth it because they're getting to go out and and harvest bountiful amounts of you know vegetables and salads and fruits just like we're talking about and at the same time demonstrating a model of actually good communication and respect for the local workforce who really do want to go do a good job and and perhaps can't communicate with the client so well but because we have, can form that bridge uh that i feel is a, is actually a big part of my job is actually educating newcomers in how to communicate respectfully with locals and uh, and to also help locals to understand that this this idea of what the customer wants that they're trying to get control and they're feeling out of control which is why they're getting angry and they express themselves in a different way and helping to bridge that gap from both sides um that's something as a as a sort of cultural communicator intercultural communicator that i feel is an additional benefit of 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 this business that we're setting up here yeah and somehow um somehow bridge this gap exactly like uh that it's it's the kind of position that we find ourselves here as, as bilingual uh, gringos that have been here for a while um bridge that gap so that you you sort of take out this um feeling of of resentment and tension that exists between the the new blow-ins we would call them in ireland and 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 the local people you know yeah, I mean, this is a very nuanced uh, way of doing business. And, and we're really looking to fitting all sides and having a lot of other positive social impacts aside from just uh, a prof running similar businesses or interacting with local communities with similar dynamics that we've just mentioned. And you can reach out to us at any time by emailing us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or messaging us directly at our Abundant Edge Facebook page as well. Um, so I think that's probably a good place to wrap up for here and please keep following us, especially on the regenerative roundtables. If you're interested in hearing how the developments for the farm and these business ventures continue to go, we'll give you an update, uh, once every month. 
with interviews with leaders and innovators in the industries of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative development uh, in the meantime. So thank you so much for listening with us this far. And we look forward to hearing from you, any feedback that you have, and we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, and just one final thing, you know, there's another podcast from a few weeks back uh, that we did with Chad, uh, where we talk about another project that we've got going, which is a community agroforestry project. And, you know, Charlie mentioned this idea that I kind of also meditate a lot on because one of my sort of spiritual gurus is the late, great Alan Watts, who talks a lot about what you would do if money was no object. And my dream, my what I want my life work, my life's work to be here in, in, in Sunran San Marcos is this kind of application of permaculture design models throughout the communities that we live in, which is, you know, our agroforestry is kind of like our zone three, zone four. Uh, and our and our gardening is our zone one zone two kind of model and really just getting a lot of of beautiful productive ecologically appropriate systems put in place over what's going to be hopefully a long number of years i don't have much to add except thanks for listening and uh, apologies for rambling and uh, <laughs> i hope you found my uh, ramblings educational and uh, yeah Keep listening. Uh, I love this podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you here, Charlie. And um, I'll leave a link to returntotheforest.org as well if you want to reach out to Charlie directly. And like I said earlier, we'll catch you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.